Hello, I'm Andre Longley and our guest on this week's Haven High podcast is Labour's Catherine West. Catherine is a former leader of Islington Council, she's MP for Hornsey and Wood Green and she's a Shadow Foreign Minister. We discuss the political landscape and how we got here and a few less weighty matters including some lockdown viewing tips. So, Catherine West, MP, thank you very much for joining us on the Hammond High podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well. This is a bit like Desert Island Discs without the discs. <laughs> yeah, not that we've stolen the format at all. So, if you were to pick your ten records, what would the first one be? Well, I think probably um, something naff and traditional like... Uh, <laughs> I'm a Londoner, or um, the streets of London, or something like that, which is what I try and get my daughter to play. She's very musical and will do, a, when we've had maybe a glass of wine and some friends around, we have a little sing-song around the piano, and I always tell her to play things like that. So um, it might be something traditional, but very naff, which um, she being cool and a teenager doesn't like normally, but will do it to please me. That's yeah. That's not how I expected to start the podcast. No. But um, <laughs> you were just saying there's quite there is quite a lot of music in your house. There it? is, yeah. Um, there's also a lot of music in this constituency because Hornsey and Wood Green has everything from steel pans at Hornsey School for Girls, which I was in as a parent, um, right through to the Crouch End um, Festival Choir, which is very well known for its classical singing. So. We have a really rich tradition here in Hornsey and Wood Green and something which I think a lot of um, artists, whether they are musicians themselves or whether they're um, sitting at home waiting for their theatre group or their music to restart because of COVID, have written to me very worried about when is the theatre world, when is music going to restart. Um, and for some instruments I think you can play them, but singing is still... I think a problem in terms of the, mm. the COVID restrictions, um, as are some of the brass instruments. So um, we've got a way to go before we can be fully musical again. Of course, one of the famous local sons, Michael Kiwanuka, picked up the Mercury Prize um, the other day as well. He's a Muswell Hill um, uh, guy, isn't he? There you go, yes. And I think that's the thing about the Harringay Music Service, of course, is that Harringay Music... Um, goes to all of our primary schools and is a wonderful sort of entree into music if you're not from a musical family. It's free. Um, it's only in secondary school that you start having to pay for lessons and things. Okay, well, um, that's, that, that's the present. Let's rewind slightly. So um, you're obviously MP for Hornsey in Wood Green. You're a former Islington Council leader as well. Um, in brief, without the whole life story, well, what's led you into politics? How did you get here? So I did languages at school and university and um, it was my love of languages that led me to working with um, newly arrived refugee communities here in London in the late 90s when I moved here and um, that's how I got to know David Lammy because a lot of the families um, were placed in temporary accommodation in Tottenham and so I worked for David as his caseworker and then he said I'll go and get on the local council so I did that and went and got on Islington Council and um, it was at a period when we were in opposition and no one really wanted to be the leader of the opposition. It was, <laughs> they say, bald men fighting over a comb. So um, I eventually was encouraged to do that and um, over many years and elections we sort of fought our way back and became the leader in 2010. And that's when we did the work on the Islington Fairness Commission which mm -hmm. was a model that a lot of other local authorities have picked up because um, it's a way of looking at your community and a way of trying to work out how to bring your community together. Because as in many cities, Hornsey and Wood Green has a great disparity, a great gap between the haves and the have-nots. Um, and the idea of any fairness commissions that you look at, you know, how you can make your area safer um, and fairer and greener well, they were the three sort of recommendations that we came out with um, but the main driver of all that is housing so the cost of housing in an expensive place like London and what can you as a local authority do but also what can you do in parliament to try and call for 
housing to be much more affordable and also wages because we basically live in a low-wage economy. Um, so they're the two sort of drivers, I think, of our inequality. And it sounds like fairness was one of the key things when you said David Lamy um, got you, encouraged you to get involved, but it, it also sounds like Labour was probably always the natural fit. Very much so. I mean, I think at the time when I became a party member, Tony Blair had just been elected. Um, it was a real sense of optimism. There were so many interesting programmes. I was a volunteer with Shore Start, which was the programme, because my own daughter was um, had just been born. So it was a great time to volunteer, get involved in, you know, the early years kind of vision that the Labour Party had mm. for not just day centre care, daycare, but also for antenatal care, for when, you know, women are experiencing um, postnatal depression or if they just are isolated. Um, and once again, this concept of bringing people together. Um, so you'd have people who were lonely, even though they'd been in work, but they really didn't know their community. And then you might have um, other parents who had knew the area well but didn't sort of know it as a parent because mm. you do get to know London in a different sort of way when you're behind a buggy um, and you get to know what it's like to have small children and be in the park um, and suddenly realise your buggy's covered in dog mess or whatever like I think that inner city sort of experience um, is quite gritty but on the other hand I think it's an experience which can bring people together from all sorts of different walks of life um, because you've got a little bit more time on your hands, not working every hour God gives you. Um, and that was a sort of nice thing to do at the time of being on the council. So mm. you, I was getting to know neighbor, the neighbourhood at the same time as being a local councillor. And then I became the leader of the opposition and then went on from there. But a lot of it was around, um, you know, how do you afford to live in London? Yeah. And how do we get the housing so that we can have more people who can stay in London and bring their families up um, and have a decent quality of life? And it is, well, COVID or no COVID, one of the key questions at the moment is housing. Um, what, what do you think the approach should be, or rather what could actually be done if there was a government that was willing to? Well, at the moment, of course, the um, Mr Johnson's government is looking at the planning um, system again and I'm a little worried because last time they did this in 2010 they allowed the Tory government then allowed lots of conversions from offices into houses because of the global financial crash which sounds good on paper the only trouble is it completely bypassed the local authority planning system and we ended up with a lot of low quality expensive privately rented flats um, and I don't think that builds a really sustainable community. I think we do need more genuinely affordable homes. So at the moment, you know, what is classed as affordable can be 80% of the market rate. Now, you can't afford that if you're a caretaker in a school or if you're a music teacher at the Haringey Music Service. Um, and I think we are beginning to introduce what's called the local rent scheme under Sadiq Khan, which is good because it looks at what's the average uh, income in a ward, so in an electoral ward, and then it ca calculates the rent of a social home, um, and I think that's one step forward. But I would hope that with the planning regulations that are going to be introduced by Mr Johnson's government, he won't go as radical as what he is saying, which means virtually no social housing unless you have a development which is almost, you know, sort of over 1,500 flats because mm. at the moment if it's a development of over 10 units so 10 homes um, it really should be 40 or 50 percent social homes and although think, there are loopholes at the moment which means that rarely happens exactly under the so it's difficult enough to make that happen you have to be quite bloody minded as a council to get mm. the social homes and you have to be forensic look at every single development and make sure that the developer is not taking you for a ride um, but if uh, the Tory government really does liberalise the planning, it could mean zero social mm. homes. And I think that's very problematic, especially for London. It, the 
obviously young people are being, well, everybody's being affected by the current situation. What are your thoughts on the um, measure, measures announced last week by Rishi Sunak to um, try to protect some jobs? I think the initial response was a good holding pattern. So the response sort of back in April. Um, right now, what constituents tell me is that if you are self-employed, you're in a dire situation. So the situation for self-employed people still hasn't been remedied. And I think in terms of the emails I receive, they seem to be the worst affected. We haven't yet gone into the first week of the new furlough arrangements, which is rather than basically covering everybody who is in work through a furlough situation if the company needs it or if um, the public sector needs it, the next step is the um, a third of people's um, uh, salaries. And until it really comes into force, it's difficult to know, but from what um, I'm hearing, where there's no long-term viability for a job, I think it's going to be very difficult because I think firms are going to start chopping away at jobs now. Um, I know, for example, people who work for BA who live here in Hornsey and Wood Green have already been told, we haven't got a job for you anymore. Mm. And in fact, one of the practices which is very worrying is this um, telling people there's no job and then making them reapply for their jobs but on lesser terms and conditions. And that sort of hire and refire, fire and rehire um, is really detrimental to people's you know, income, but mm. also terms and conditions around holidays, sick pay and so on. So, you know, I would hope that we don't have unscrupulous employers who use this. Equally, employers like BA are in a difficult position. So I can't see, unless we have a proper government scheme, a lot of those jobs will disappear. That is what remains to be seen, isn't it? How employers respond, and as you say, that well, there will be some unscrupulous ones. That's just how it works. It's just how many there are and how how the majority approach it, isn't yeah. it? I think the difference this time round compared to, um, say, the global financial crash in two thousand and eight, is that often when there's a recession. Um, many people who are in precarious roles, those jobs disappear. But this time, the effect has been more uniform. So mm. in Hornsey and Wood Green, the ward which has had the most steep increase in joblessness is actually Muswell Hill Ward, 300% increase in joblessness. That doesn't mean that's in absolute terms, but it just means that that's the number mm. of people who, who are increasingly jobless. Um, and that's because I think a lot of people, when they are in work, are quite well paid. So if you think about a sound technician who works at the Royal Opera House or a, um, you know, a, a musician who um, plays in an orchestra, when they are in work, they may earn 50 or £60,000 a year pro rata. Mm. However, obviously, with all of that work just gone, just being on universal credit is a real shock to the system. Um, because you cannot pay a mortgage, you cannot pay very much in rent. Okay, you might be able to get housing benefit, but we are talking people, and that is why we have much more use of food banks. I mean, having a food hub, which the local authority has created, we that was unimaginable, say, back when I first became a Labour Party yes. member under the Blair years. Yeah. You know, the fact that we have people queuing up at food banks is really disturbing. And of course, we had people queuing up in food banks in the last few years before yeah. even this, but it's obviously got worse. Have you got? Uh, are you getting the personal stories of people coming to you as constituents now about that, or, or do you feel it coming along? I've been to visit some of the food banks, and what always interests me when you go to either a soup kitchen or a food bank is the mix of people, because mm. what you expect in your mind is somebody who's sort of looks quite down and out or you know who's got a terrible health problem or they've been sleeping rough but what I've noticed is increasingly there are people who you wouldn't expect who need that food to get them them and their families through this week um, and that's where the faith communities have been fantastic our churches synagogues and mosques have all been great at giving food away uh, and also doing the winter night shelter program, which will start again shortly in a couple of months, where each faith community takes one night of the week. Okay. So people who 
are made homeless have got that as a sort of a safety net. Once again, if you go to visit um, and thank the volunteers and have a chat to the people who are there overnight, it's often people who are beautifully dressed, they may have come for a job interview to London, they cannot afford a hotel, um, or somebody who's maybe had some kind of situation at home, either escaping domestic violence or you know, being um, made homeless because of a domestic violence situation. And so I think what you find as a constituency MP is more and more surprises about how mm. people are being caught out. And I think that's similar to the stories that you read from the Great Depression, that it was people who were doing quite well, mm. or it was people who had a really good future in front of them. Um, and I think this is what's really worrying and why I would like the government to be as proactive as possible um, in terms of protecting the community in tough times. Coming back to when you first got involved in the party, we we always very engaged. I'm, I'm struck by how you talk about these issues. You're obviously very knowledgeable. You're obviously... Um, care deeply about it was that always the case or did you gradually become more and more engrossed in it as you did it um i think i was always interested in um sort of social policy and it was the excitement of that first election so were you an activist before 97 no no so um basically i think it was just some of the ideas so sure start was a big one that was the um family's policy but also just this sense that um, it was at the time of being very engaged with the European Union, for example, um, you know, and at the time also the pound was very competitive. You could just travel to Europe at the drop of a hat, you know. Um, I had other friends, not myself, but friends who, you know, were sort of half in Italy for half the year and half in London for the other. And, you know, artistically and culturally, there was so much going on. Um, yeah, strangely, it was also a time of, in a way, well, national pride, what might look jingoistic from a certain angle, but actually it was a celebration. Everybody was, you know, Britpop was there, but Euro right. 96. Yep. I think the, the cool Britannia thing, it, we did all laugh at it, but there was a sense of pride. And I think I also felt a strong sense of pride at the 2012 Olympic Games as well. I was involved in the transport planning for that. Um, and that was also very exciting. And, you know, that was obviously... Ken Livingston was the mayor when that was when the bid was done, but when it was actually brought in, it was not a Labour government, but it still felt a moment of pride. Um, but I think in the last couple of years, things have felt very tough on the national stage. Mm. I think the Brexit, the tearing of the sort of fabric around the Brexit debate and so on, when I compare it to yeah. those first few years of um, Labour being in charge, it does just feel so different. Does and it, I mean it's interesting. You mentioned that the I think you mentioned the credit crunch before the, the twenty ten. It's interesting that if you look at uh, the Olympics in twenty twelve, it was so soon after. It's not like everything was rosy, but um, there was still an optimism and things. Um, but certainly something happened as as we approached the Brexit vote. And I know you're a, you were a big campaigner to remain. Yeah, I mean I just feel geopolitically that. It's not in our interest to be sort of fragmenting that very fragile but very important relationship with our European neighbours. And that's really sort of the very big picture of it. Um, I know that people feel disappointed that, you know, the vision of the European Union didn't live up to some of the hopes, perhaps. Um, But, and I think there are mistakes have been made, you know, we didn't tackle the refugee crisis as well as we could have as a European Union, and there are problems, but I think just throwing the whole thing out, that's really only going to help, you know, someone like Mm. Russia or maybe China when they do trade deals and things. It's going to be much more difficult for the UK to do trade deals as a single nation compared to having that big market of over 500 million people. Yeah, and obviously we're... The, the, the negotiating power that the country has is currently being tested with the Brexit negotiations themselves. Exactly. I mean, uh, now that I'm doing the Shadow Europe role and I've been very active trying to meet some of the women who are involved in the Belarus situation mm. and, you know, speaking to the Lithuanians about what's happening in Belarus and so on, um, it just strikes me as 
ridiculous that we're not working more closely with Germany and France to really try and put up a united front um, in terms of our relationship with Russia, Belarus, uh, even today, Azerbaijan and Armenia, that part of the world, we do all really need to stand as Western Europeans together. Um, and I think this Brexit negotiation doesn't help because we're bickering and arguing. Um, and what we should be doing is trying to pull together geopolitically. Um, it only serves other countries or other big trading blocks if we're fragmented in Europe. I think the, that, that relationship will obviously solidify as things become clear at the end of the negotiations and obviously COVID is a huge distraction. It's the, the big subject on the table at the moment. I suppose what I was trying to get at was that that argument has been done we've voted to leave, there will be now be arguments or debates about what the future relationship is, all that's happening. But there's still the question of how we got to that point where we voted to leave and where that leads the country now. And I think I'm thinking in particular about what we've seen over the weekend in terms of protests about um, against masks and against vaccines. And these may be unrelated to those votes but they certainly talk about a distrust of the authorities and the government um, and a cynicism. I think there is a sizable number of people who feel we're not on their side. And that is a massive challenge for, for government in general, but for the Labour Party, because we're the People's Party. Um, and we need to reconnect with our communities and talk to people. Um, and I think that the Brexit vote did show that there was a big disconnect between, you know, trying to get across the vision that I was talking about, about being strong within Europe and strong as a sort of united front. Um, but then there's a lot of people who feel that um, in their hometown or in their region, government hasn't done enough. And it is frustrating when you're in opposition, because obviously since 2010, that's 10 years, 10 years of a Tory government. It's not how we would have done things as the Labour Party. But equally, um, it's just when you do have a very centralised arrangement, such as Westminster, that that disconnect can feel very stark. Um, and I think that's why some of the devolved regions may have done a bit better than, um, you know, than in, in England, really, because we have got a lot of people who seem to be really, really unhappy um, and so think, are there changes you'd like to see in terms well, of devolution for England? As you know, um, Labour had the regional development agencies, the RDAs, and in 2004, that's going to be a long time now, we had votes about whether regions would like to have their own devolved arrangements, similar to the London Mayor. And of course, London voted for the London Mayor in 2000. Um, and that was something which was new and exciting, and I think... You know, it's been a fantastic development to have that regional level of government where, you know, the transport, the public health, um, some of the education and culture, um, the policing is done on a more regional basis. It's much better than just borough by borough. Um, but I feel outside London that hasn't happened to the same degree. I think mayors are a good step forward. So Andy Burnham being mayor of Manchester region, um, and then, of course, you've got some of the other areas which are starting to get similar arrangements. I think that kind of federalist approach could work really well. And it does seem to have cross-party support because, obviously, there are um, there is some continuity between what Labour was thinking about when it had the regional development agencies back in 2004, a long time ago, um, right up to now when most regions now have a mayor and a sort of sense of an assembly um, and working together. And I would hope that that might make people feel more connected um, as a neighbourhood, more connected with each other. But it's not just devolution of power, it has to be devolution of funding. Um, because you can have the best mayor in the world, but if she or he does not have the funds to do or to fulfil the aspirations of the population, you will end up being just a voice crying in the wilderness. Mm. You do need to have that funding as well. 
Um, well, so let's, let's come to that in a, a mm. second when it comes to London. But just sticking on the um, the devolution around England, do you think that would be something that the Labour Party could or should put front and centre for its next manifesto? Definitely. I mean, I think what would be really good is a kind of a, a constitutional conversation. That sounds quite wordy, but the idea of it is is to reform the House of Lords so that it's regionally balanced because at the moment most of the people in the House of Lords come from London and the South East mm. um, so that um, reduce its size because there are almost 900 members now we need to reduce the size take out the hereditary peers and have regular elections so that people are voting for their regional reps and have a bit more of a sort of a House of Commons plus an upper house mm -hmm. concept and at least that would get round the regional concept. And then you could also have those regional representatives then having an echo in their region at funding level. Because I think at the moment, the way the House of Lords works, which is basically by appointment, mainly from the Prime Minister, but also from the Leader of the Opposition, it's just completely disconnected to how people live their lives. These are not people who are known particularly to local people. Some of them are. But on the whole, it's not representative and it really needs to be because we need to have that sort of scrutiny level of our legislation run by yeah. regional people. So on London itself, um, I think there's more and more frustration coming out of City Hall, isn't there? What, what do you think are the big issues um, at the moment? You've mentioned the under-18s travel. That's right. Um, I think we could end up having primary legislation brought forward to get rid of the Freedom Pass, which is 60-plus travel, um, under the guise that it's too expensive because of COVID. Um, you could end up having... Well, there are already government representatives on TfL's board, so it's an infringement onto the devolution settlement for London. Um, and that will mean that there will be government um, officials sort of making decisions about funding for Londoners when we've elected people to do that. Um, that seems rather unfair um, for a Londoner to know that the government is, you know, going to be tinkering. Now, their philosophy is, well, we're helping to pay for some of this, and it's true that the government has helped Transport for London a bit, but not nearly as much as, say, the railways the national railways which have basically been um, nationalised. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's still a few arguments to be had about how we continue in an environment where traditionally London has actually been able to pay its way quite well in transport terms. Um, but we are obviously seeing all of the fares drop away um, and it's 15% of what it was in terms of its income mm -hmm. and we do need a settlement on that. Um, and there will be a big row in the coming months about the um, under-18s travel. And I've had lots of families contact me really worried about whether their young people will be able to get to school, out to leisure activities, whether they'll be able to get from A to B. And it seems very unfair to reduce access to young Londoners who have always had, because of the London Mayor, mm. have always had that free travel. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's a very sudden and real change for a family that suddenly can't put the, the people on the bus um, for free without, That's right. and, without the extra cost. And also somewhat confusing message to say, go to school, but you have to pay to get on the bus. Uh, and if you have, say, two or three kids in secondary school, that will be a big expense for you every week mm. as a family. So we're fighting that one very hard. To, to break away from the current, um, current politics, what have been the moments since you became... MP, where you've been genuinely surprised by what's happened in the community. I'm thinking, as a newspaper journalist or editor, it's the things that surprise you. It's the when you meet somebody who's received an OBE for running a community hall, and actually you have a lovely conversation, and you make you think, oh, actually, the world's not made up of Twitter trolls. It's made up of real lovely people. Are there moments that jump out where you think that was really worth it? Well, funnily enough, yesterday I was walking out of the Labour office in Middle Lane in Crouch End and someone just stopped me and said, oh, thank you for all you're doing. 
And it's those small moments when you don't know the person, but they know you um, and they feel as though you've made an impact. And I think that was very strong through the Brexit debates. Um, the day after the vote in, on the 24th of June 2016, I rang up the town hall and I said, could I book a room um, locally? And we ended up in the old Hornsey town hall. And I thought there would might be people who were European Union citizens who were worried about their passports because who knows what was going to happen. Mm. Um, and so I booked a very small room in the old Hornsey town hall. Well, on the day, at 10 o'clock on the Saturday morning, so this is three days after the vote, hundreds of people just filed in. We had to get the Grand Hall open, the dusty old Grand Hall. Really? And it was biblical. People just pouring through those doors. Some people were in tears. Um, um, were these EU citizens looking no, for it was, no, it was much wider than that. It was just so many people who felt the shock that it was really an identity crisis who you thought you were mm. as a country was not reflected in that vote, which of course shows the divide. Of course it was, that vote itself was an indication that there was already an identity crisis, it's just that many of us haven't understood that. Yes. And obviously I hold my hand up there as well. I would never have dreamed that more than a third of the country would vote for Brexit, let alone a majority. I think the other thing is in London, because we weren't targeted in the same way on Facebook, we weren't targeted in the same way with advertisements mm. and things, I don't think we really realised the strength of feeling that there was out there. Um, and I think we were in our own bubble. By the time it came to the week before the vote, we ran polling day on the 23rd of June 2016 um, as though it was a general election. In one electoral ward, we had seven teams out in one polling district, which is a third of a ward, mm. because we'd identified which was the ward that had the strongest Remain vote. So we did know um, that it was difficult at that point, but it was only really in the last 10 days that we realised that Mr Cameron's um, endeavours were failing somewhat. Um, and, of course, I think it was too late by then, of course. Um, don't forget as well, just the month before, it had been quite a difficult election for the London Mayor and Mr Cameron at the time had used the um, dispatch box to imply that Londoners couldn't trust um, Sadiq Khan and he used dog whistle sort of politics at the dispatch box and I remember thinking how ugly that was and how hard we had to fight for that election. Mm. Um, and people forget that it was only a month later that we had... So it's all, lots of people say, why did it happen that way? And I think for a lot of people who don't understand how much work goes into one election, you're physically and mentally exhausted after a London election. Mm. And then, of course, to turn around and to have to do the whole thing again, you know, less than six weeks later, is a huge undertaking. Um, and also very complicated messaging because what you're trying to do is build a coalition in a referendum vote and as Labour campaigners we're very mm. used to doing our own thing but if we had just turned out the Labour vote in some parts of the country we would have been just turning out more Leave voters so it was actually really difficult and mm. I realise now that it's partly that we should have been campaigning on Europe in more of a less technocratic way perhaps. So for example, if you look at parts of the country like Cornwall or um, certain regions of the country where they've had a lot of European funding, we always kept that quiet. And we should have been mm. telling people yeah. this regional funding which is paying for this unemployment project or this regional funding which is helping your local university to employ more people and to attract you know, international students. This is European funding. Um, and, you know, I just think we failed to make the case consistently about the importance of the European Union, whereas I think when you live in Europe on the continent, it's much more apparent to you because of the geography. Um, yes. And I, I mean, is, is, there, is there a lot of guilt in the Labour Party? I mean, obviously, the, the other thing that we've not mentioned is that this was under Jeremy Corbyn, whose um, feelings towards Europe or towards the EU is complicated 
to say the least. Yeah. So, so there's the accusation that Labour right. wasn't all in for yeah. Remain anyway. I mean, I think Jeremy hadn't voted to go into Europe '74, um, and secondly, um, it was quite a turbulent time internally and it's always difficult to run an election when internally you've got battles um, and yet he made a very good speech about the importance of you know all workers across Europe being joined together and being at one so you know I know that by the time we got to the election he was talking the talk in those terms but he also refused to be on a platform with David Cameron because he felt that it had been one of the reasons that the Scottish referendum had gone so badly because the then Labour leadership had been sort of arm in arm with the Tories on Scotland mm. and we'd only just managed to hold the line in Scotland and he felt that that was the wrong tactic. So at the beginning of the European um, the referendum on Europe in 2016 he said to the planning groups, he felt it would be more powerful if he tried to get out the Labour vote with trade union colleagues and that sort of wing of the party, but it wasn't enough. That was the trouble. Um, because in the end, you need to have lots of different parts of the community voting the same way to make up the numbers, particularly with that sort of vote, because obviously it's a bucket vote. And that's why we had the big turnout as well, because people who don't usually vote in general elections because they may be Tories in a Labour area or Labour in a Tory area, they don't bother voting because they know it won't make a difference. Of course, the, the vote in the end was nationally 52-48%. And so, although there are a lot of factors, it is complicated. It must also be true that certain slight changes could have made a difference. David Cameron could probably have done things differently and swung it. Jeremy Corbyn could probably as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you and probably your colleagues are aware of that for, to, to some degree. Yes, very much so. I think the two mainstream parties, funnily enough, how they were then, we do all feel, I think, a sense of how did we manage that and yet I think as you mentioned earlier in this interview the Brexit vote was sort of an anti-establishment vote so if you're going out as the establishment and asking people to vote in a certain way they may just do the opposite so yeah. it is very complicated um, but in the end you know we didn't turn out our Labour Remain support in sufficiently large quantities and that's maybe also because we didn't know where enough of them were I mean, I knew in Hornsey and Woodgreen that we were on to a large sort of <clears throat> number of votes and also we thought even at two o'clock in the morning that it would be okay because the London result was coming in quite late because they're large constituencies. Yeah. Um, so I went to sleep thinking that, you know, we would probably just squeeze over the line because I was exhausted, it was 3am and I thought I'll just get a couple of hours and I got a call at 4am from... 2GB, a Sydney railways um, radio station, saying, would you give a comment about the UK leaving the European Union? I said, I'll ring you back in 10 minutes. And I said to my other half, quick, turn the radio on. And that was it. It was, it had gone. So, you know, that was, when you ask about yeah. surprises, I think that one takes the cake. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the day after, I did quite a few interviews and a lot of international, um, a lot of other countries were interested in what had happened. Yeah, because well, of it course, was it, it such wasn't, a surprise. It was, and it wasn't the first referendum on Europe. That's the other thing as well. Lots of other, it had happened before in other countries, and um, Remain had won in those places. That's right. As we speak, we're um, approaching a likely second wave of COVID. There's new restrictions just come in place nationally. There's um, local lockdowns around the country. But there also seems to be a desperation from the government not to shut everything down. Are you satisfied with the approach at the moment or do you think we're going the wrong way? I think we can learn a lot from other people's or other regions' lockdowns 
Um, we all know what 100% lockdown looks like because we did that this spring. And I think many of us are very worried about going back there, particularly in the colder months where you can't even sit outside because it'll be too cold. Um, and I think the way that we've got the schools back up and running seems to be good um, and having more local control. So when there's an issue in a school, going through your local public health doctor, which mm. who sits in the council, to look at your arrangements as a school um, is probably a better approach than um, you know individual schools doing their own thing. So I think trying to, to achieve a little bit more consistency at that level. Um, and then, of course, the care homes. I'm hoping that now we know much more about that and are much more proactive on that, um, including testing of staff, because it does appear that there was some transmission through staff who work in several different locations. Um, and so at least you're protecting, if you've got a plan for the younger, younger members of society, you've got a plan for the older ones. I think disabled people have missed out an enormous amount because so many services have stopped all of the job brokerage, all of the training, um, a lot of the things which are not online have stopped. Mm. I think disabled people need a special plan for them. And perhaps that could be borough by borough, but with a bit more funding from government. Um, and then I think for people who can work at home, people I think are working at home. Um, and then obviously the big ones are, the big sectors in the economy are um, entertainment, hospitality, um, culture and huge in London. Masses of people work in the cultural sector and are really disadvantaged. Um, and so, if we can try and manage a scheme for them, a what sector. What kind of shape would you like to see that? Well, I, the, the grants are going to be announced in the next week or so. The, they are the the emergency fund. Yeah, I think the the cultural offer um, and trying to get those grants off the ground quickly, as quickly as possible, are really important. Um, and also maybe being a bit more um, flexible around the small business loans. So there's lots of small businesses who contacted me saying, oh, you know, the value of our um, business is one pound over the limit and we can't gain access to that scheme. So I've been making representations to the Treasury about that and working closely with the business team at Harringay Council to try and ensure that we keep the, the businesses who do employ people locally in the borough, just keep them all going. Um, so if we could have the sector-specific programs for the cultural sector. The other one is sport. Um, I think sport for all ages is incredibly important during COVID because of um, the mental health aspect. There's now research which shows if you are fitter physically, you are likely to be better off mentally. Um, and I would like to see a really vibrant program at half term and even in the Christmas holidays so that young people mm. have things to do which are outside. Um, and I think with a bit of imagination around, say, athletics, football, um, netball, basketball, surely you can do that even with COVID, with some coaches who are COVID safe. Um, let's keep all that going. Let's keep an offer there so that people can get out of very small flats particularly teenagers who do not want to be cooped up with their parents and their parents want them to have a safe activity to go to. Um, I think we could manage, but we do have to be creative and we have to spend a little bit of money on it and keep everything going. How did you, obviously, you would have been working throughout the lockdown um, when it was fully in place, but how did you switch off or relax or keep yourself in the level? So I chair the all-party group for swimming and I swim at um, a number of different places, including the Park Road Lido and the um, women's bathing ponds, which of course were going up until the end of March and then they stopped. Um, and then of course in the summer, the West uh, Reservoir in Hackney opened, which was which is, it's a bit cold now, but it was lovely while it lasted. Um, and also cycling. I cycle into Parliament, so um, from Hornsey Lane into Parliament, that's a good sort of 35 minutes. I go very slowly, particularly coming back up the hill. Um, but, you know, that's the sort of thing you don't have to spend a lot of money to keep fit. And of course, with gyms, a lot of the gyms were closed. So I would say to people listening to the podcast, try and think about your daily routine. Could you get a bicycle or could you walk to the shops rather than drive? Um, that kind of thing just to keep yourself active because I think that's very important for your emotional health. I think one of the things that was that we were lucky with was that the, it was such a mild spring wasn't it and um, 
warm summer so that actually our limited time outdoors was time we could spend outdoors. Yes, yeah. And also, there is a worry that if yeah. the winter sets in mm. early and, and it's a, a bad, cold, wet one, then people will be cooped up and not able to do all of this. Our garden centres were really good too during the lockdown. So, um, you know, the Dernsford Road and Alley Pally were both able to sort of keep people going mm. with bark chips and soil and pots. And even if you have a, a small uh, flat, maybe with not much outdoor space, can you have a little bit of a patio garden or can you have some indoor plants? Because they're the sorts of things which sort of keep us going and it's really important to have that. As the patron of the, multi- the Muswell Hill Horticultural Society, <laughs> I could really promote. <laughs> we haven't had our shows this year, mm-hmm. so I haven't been picking the best daffodils, but um, I think many of the people who um, are active in these groups they're healthy and fit right to an old age because they keep mm. up their gardening, they keep up their allotments, they keep up their patio gardens um, or their indoor plants. You know, it's, it's another way of keeping sane. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, um, did you find a Netflix addiction like many of us did? What yes, was your show? Netflix, um, what have I watched recently? Um, what did I watch? I've been watching Jane the Virgin with my daughter, which is just when you completely want to relax and switch off because we're up to chapter 50 and it's, we're still only halfway through. Um, that's nice because it's got a little bit of Spanish in it and uh, I'd like to learn Spanish properly one day. Um, but that's fun and it means we just basically switch on the TV and have a cup of tea and mm. laugh and that's really nice. Uh, and then there are some more serious ones, of course, um, I think Succession is one that I want to get into. I believe that's very good. I've heard good things. I've not seen that. Yeah. And also I just enjoy watching the news, so I always tape it because I often can't sit down bang on seven. I watch the Channel 4 News, um, Panorama, um, a lot of our documentaries. They're very high quality. We're mm. very lucky to have yeah. the sorts of um, producers who put on these marvellous shows for us. You can't claim that watching Channel 4 News is switching off, though, surely. <laughs> That's just True, extended research. Interestingly, you would expect, as a Hornsey and Wood Green MP, that I would do a lot of the BBC. I tend to do a bit more Sky News. Mm. That could just be because they have more slots to fill, um, but it's also that they enjoy the debate. So I'm often on with you know an arch-Brexiteer and myself talking about mm. <laughs> whatever the issue of the day is. Um, do so, you enjoy that? Who's your favourite opponent on these oh, Well, debates? I, you know, I've got... I have often on with John Redwood or, you know, Mr Stone or Mr Bone or, you know, the Brexiteers. Mm. And in terms of presenters, obviously Dermot Murnaghan, who's local mm-hmm. to Hornsey and Woodgreen, um, and Adam Bolton. And, yeah, so I'm, even though Sky is obviously, um, you know, News International, isn't it? But I find that it, and it's actually won awards for its, its journalism mm. because it has got... I think more journalists um, and also it's got more time for the debate and I quite like that and I feel that is so much better than just looking at Facebook because somebody's thought about how do we get the two different views, how do we try and have the debate, have the conversation which is what you were saying earlier Yeah. Um, and I would really hope that you know we'd be able to you know develop that kind of approach. Um, is there anybody in the, the House of Commons on, on the other side that um, you most enjoy coming up against? Or Well, on the front bench, obviously, Rishi Sunak is an interesting politician to watch because he does appear to have his finger on the pulse in terms of what people are thinking about jobs and so on. He's also winning a PR battle, isn't he? He's, he is. He's, he's quite um, an interesting person, I think. Mm. Obviously very different from me in that he had you know worked in the city and so on before he became an MP but that is more common for a Tory MP um, I'm interested in the fact that he took over from William Hague mm. in that part of the country in Yorkshire where it's quite traditional so um, quite Brexity and I wonder how that goes down because I see him as more of a Remain type MP you'll um, give your full backing to Sakir Starmer as leader 
but um, is it something you'd consider one day leading the party? No, I think Keir's doing a very good job, and uh, he and I, of course... doesn't sound like rolling it out. Well, Keir and I have a very good relationship um, as neighbouring MPs, um, and, you know, we share wonderful things like Lauderdale House together. It's technically on his patch, but the committee are all from Hornsey and Wood Green. (laughs) And I think he's doing a great job. Every MP dreams that maybe they would at one point be um, in a leadership position. But I think I'm very happy being a shadow minister. I'm loving the Europe role and I'm loving the Americas, which is the other element of my role. And, um, you know, I think in future we will have a woman leader, but I'm pretty sure it won't be Catherine West. (laughs) Um, It still doesn't sound like you're rolling it out. You can't always put yourself out of the picture, but I think we will end up... um, I would hope we would end up with um, a strong woman next and possibly someone from regional England who might be able to somehow um, encapsulate the dreams and the wishes of, you know, the part of the UK which I think feels a bit marginalised and I would be very interested to see how all that pans out. But in the meantime, um, Keir has a big job of reform within the Labour Party. Um, I know that his poll ratings are higher than ours as a party and I know that he's trying to fix up a lot of the problems that we've had around anti-Semitism. He's trying to fix up some of our internal squabbles. He's trying to make us look more trustworthy in terms of um, having our house in order and all those things that you have to do when you're a leader. Um, because he has been very strategic as um, the public prosecutor, he knows how to run an organisation. And that will take a couple of years to achieve, but hopefully in time for the next election we will look like a winning team again um, and people will have a sense that, you know, with Labour, you know, we can put our hope in Labour. Catherine, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you very much. And uh, every best wish to all of our Ham and High readers.